Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from him, after Lot has separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards, and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So far, God's word from today. We're going to take some time now to reflect on this word that we have just read. Now, one of the many books that I regularly read to my daughters is a short biography about a woman named Ada Lovelace. If you don't know the name, and I didn't know the name before I got this book, if you don't know the, if you don't know the name, Ada Lovelace was an exceptional mathematician in the 19th century in the UK. She's regarded as one of the first computer programmers, and she lived a short but exceptional life. However, her life was marked by many challenges. Her father left her when she was five weeks old, and her mother was also quite absent, and so for most of her life, her grandparents raised her. She also experienced a lot of health issues, especially in her youth, and I think she was bedridden for over a year at one point in her youth. But despite these challenges, despite this adversity, she went on to accomplish many great things, and even today has a computer language named after her. I think it's called Ada, uh, appropriately. Ada overcame many obstacles and adversity to achieve what she did. The story of Ada is a story that our culture loves to celebrate, and perhaps even romanticize and exaggerate a little bit. Our culture is drawn to stories where people or groups of people overcome adversity. Stories of people like cancer-stricken Terry Fox in the Marathon of Hope, or LeBron James' rise from impoverishment to become an NBA superstar, or the story of the Canadian military victory at Vimy Ridge. And I'm pretty sure overcoming adversity is basically the plot of pretty much every other Matt Damon movie out there. Stories of people, real or imagined, that overcome incredible adversity are the stories that our culture loves. They are the stories that fill the books we read and the movies we watch. 
But how do these stories match up with your own life? How did you respond when you lost a job? Or when, when there, how did you respond when there was conflict in a relationship? Or how did you respond when COVID threw your life upside down? My guess is that if you're like me, maybe you've got a few stories of overcoming adversity, but also many other stories where your response has been less than stellar. And for what it's worth, I imagine Ada Lovelace would agree with that. I think if we're being honest, our lives often show a disconnect with the stories we romanticize. Our lives are not Matt Damon movies. And while these stories that we celebrate certainly provide some good um, traits like perseverance and they might motivate us for a moment, unfortunately, I think sadly, these stories fall short of truly helping us as we face our own adversity and our own shortcomings in those moments. We need a new narrative for our lives. In our passage today, we see Abram respond to adversity on multiple fronts, but his response is quite different from the narrative our culture promotes and celebrates. And at the heart of it all is Abram's faith in God, his trust in God. If you've been here in previous weeks, you'll know that Abram is far from perfect, but I think it's actually because he is imperfect that this text is so helpful for us. As we look at this text today and Abram's response to adversity, we'll look at it in three parts. We'll look at first Abram's return, then Abraham's relinquishment, and then finally, Abram's walk. Return, relinquishment, and walk. Let's start with Abram's return. Last week, we left off with Abram being sent out of Egypt by Pharaoh. Faced with adversity in the form of a famine in the promised land, Abram had gone to, to Egypt. Once there, he had lied to Pharaoh that Sarai was not his wife, which put Sarai in a very awkward position, to say the least, and his actions led to curses for Egypt and ultimately led to him being kicked out of the, of the nation of Egypt. Abram's response to adversity last week was a disaster. We pick up the narrative today after Abram has been kicked out of Egypt. We see Abram, Sarai, his wife, and his nephew Lot, with all of their possessions, travel to a place called the Negeb. From there, they move on to a place where he had earlier, in Genesis 12, set up his tent between Bethel and Ai. If you look back at Genesis 12, particularly verses 8 and 9, we see that Abram is retracing his steps on his journey to Egypt. Abram has returned the same way he went to Egypt, and he has returned to the altar he created in Genesis 12, the place where God had promised Abram the land of Canaan. This is the place where God last spoke to Abram, and also the last time that it's recorded, at least, that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. During the entire, entire narrative in Egypt, there is no communication between God and Abram. But now, Abram returns to where he last spoke with and worshipped God. And in verse 4, we see that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know if Abram worshipped God in Egypt. He may have, but there's no mention of it there. But the author does mention here that Abram is worshipping God again. And this is significant. The author is communicating that there is a change in Abram's posture towards God. Abram, Abram's action depict a return of faith for Abram. In Egypt, Abram's action showed his lack of faith in God and the promises of God, and the result was a disaster. But here we see a return to faith as Abram returns to the altar. He has been humbled and is turning from trusting himself. His return to the altar in worshiping of God shows us that Abram is placing his faith, his trust, back in God and God's promises. I think we can learn from Abram's example here. Like Abram, I think, it's often very instinctive 
for us when adversity comes to take matters into our own hands. With little thought of what God would have us do in those moments. We saw it happen at the beginning of this pandemic when we all went to the grocery store and raided it of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And while that might be a silly example of responding to adversity, we probably have had similar kinds of responses when we face other kinds of adversity in our lives. Abram's initial response to the adversity he faced was not great. But in humility, he returned to God and placed his faith back in God and his promises. Like Abram, we've all failed in the way we've handled adversity at some point or another. And Abram's example reminds us that we can, we can and ought to return to God when we realize we've not trusted in God. Our God is a God who is quick to forgive his people and desires for us to look at, to him in the midst of adversity. So we see Abram's first response to adversity in this chapter is his return to God. We see Abram's second response to adversity in verses 5 to 13. And this response is highlighted by Abram's relinquishment of his rights. Now in verse 2, if you backtrack for a second, we see that Abram returned from Egypt and is very rich in livestock. And in verses 5 and 6, we see that Lot has also acquired much wealth. And for both of them, this includes the large, large, large flocks and herds. God has blessed these two materially, but with this came a conflict. In verse 6, we read that the land cannot support both of them because of how great their flocks and herds were. And in verse 7, we see that this results in strife between Abram and Lot's herdsmen. Once again, adversity has come upon Abram, and peace between him and Lot is now being threatened by their great wealth. Now, there's a few things I think are, that are quickly worth noting at this point. First, I think it's important to note that Abram had just returned to the land of, of the promised land of Canaan, and the reason he had left was because the land had failed him because of the famine. And, and here, now, once again, it seems the promised land has failing, is failing Abram. Connected to this, the comment at the end of verse 7 highlights that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. This is important first because likely the reason that Abram and Lot cannot uh, live together in the, in the land is because there are also others in the land who are also taking up resources that were required for Abram's and Lot's herds and flocks. But second, it's also a reminder that while God has promised this land to Abram's descendants, this land still remains in the hands of other people. Now, a final thing to note is that this conflict comes right after we see Abram's return to God. It's important to note that just because Abram has put his faith back in God this does not remove adversity for Abram. Furthermore, it's also worth noting that God has still not communicated with Abram in a long while. The last record we have of God communicating with Abram is before his failed trip to Egypt. So to sum up, the promised land is once again failing Abram. The Canaanites still occupy the land. Abram still has no descendants. This new adversity is now threatening the peace within Abram's own family. And to top it all off, while Abram has returned to God, it seems that God is silent towards Abram. Now, I imagine it would have been easy for Abram to doubt God and his promises once again. But Abram's response here is different. Here he shows his faith remains in God. In verse 8, we see that when Abram is confronted with this threat, he speaks with Lot and tries to find a resolution. Abram and Lot are at this point near Bethel, as we noted, this is a city thousands of miles above sea level uh, and offers a great view of the land. From that vantage point, Abram tells Lot to look at the whole land and he gives Lot the, the first choice of land to where, of where to settle his flocks and his herds. Now this move by Abram is quite the departure 
from Abram's actions only a chapter before. Abram, as the elder to Lot, had every right to choose first and give himself the choicest land, but Abram relinquishes this right for the sake of peace within his family. Abram lets Lot have the chance to make, take the best land and leave himself with whatever is left. Instead of taking matters into his own hand, like Abram did in Egypt, he relinquishes control of the situation and shows incredible faith that wherever, God, wherever he ends up, God will provide for his needs. In the midst of adversity, Abram acts in faith. Now, not only is this action a stark contrast from Abram in Egypt, but we also see a stark contrast between Abram and Lot in these verses. And Lot's going to be a foil for, for Abram for the, for the next couple of chapters, actually. In the story of Lot in this chapter, we see a cautionary tale for us. In verse 10, we see that Lot looks at the land and sees that the Jordan Valley was well watered. The text even compares it to the Garden of Eden in the land of Egypt, where Lot had just returned from. It seems like an ideal spot to settle in. And Lot, who has experienced the failure of the Promised Land twice now as well, for Lot, who experienced the failure of the Promised Land twice now, it must have been an attractive option. And so it's not surprising that Lot chooses to settle in this area. And you could argue on one hand that this is a good decision for Lot. The Bible also highlights that uh, highlights the importance of taking care of your family and their needs. And this land looks like it will do a great job of taking care of, of Lot and his family's needs for a long time. But the author of Genesis quickly dispels any thought that this was a good decision. Right after Lot makes his decision, the author inserts a comment at the end of verse 10 concerning the Lord's future destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities in the Jordan Valley. And that's, that's a little bit more than ominous that that, that verse is there, that those words are there. The next clue that this is not a wise move by Lot is the description of Lot's journey to the Jordan Valley. It's a brief and easily missed comment, but the author says in verse, seven, verse 11 that Lot journeyed east. Now, this may not seem like an important comment at all, but in biblical writing, to travel east, to journey east, is often a symbol of moving away from God's presence. To exit the Garden of Eden, to exit the temple, both places where God is present, places where God dwells, to exit those places, you had to travel east. So when the author says that Lot journeyed east, this is, this is a negative connotation, that Lot is moving away from God's presence. And if there's any doubt at this point, this is a bad decision. Verse 13 notes that the residents of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. The word here for, for wicked is the Hebrew word raim. And it's the same word used to describe the people of Noah's day, whom God wiped out because of their great wickedness. These are the people that Lot, in verse 12, pitches his tent among. In the coming weeks, we'll see the negative impact of Lot's decision to move to the Jordan Valley, but the author here already hints that Lot's decision will not go well for him. While Lot chose land that was appealing, the cost was moved to move amongst people described as wicked and great sinners. Now, we've already seen evidence that many within the land of Canaan do not worship God, but this description of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Jordan Valley seems to highlight that these cities are places of exceeding wickedness. In the book of 2 Peter, Peter says that Lot tormented his righteous soul by living amongst these people. Now, the story of Abraham and Lot's separation is a cautionary tale for us for a couple of reasons. The first is that wealth is not the solution to our problems the way we often think it is. The whole reason Abraham and Lot have to separate is because they're so wealthy. The wealth drives them apart. Living in a foreign land, it would no doubt have been better to live together, but their wealth isolates Abram and Lot, and even leads to more problems. 
As the acclaimed philosopher, the notorious B.I.G., once said, it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. That honestly kind of sums up what we see happening here. The wealth of Abraham and Lot, while a blessing on one hand, has also brought with it a host of problems. I think we should be careful to take note of this. Now, many Canadians have dreamt at one point or another of owning a cottage. I know I have at one point. Usually we dream of a peaceful waterfront property, a place to get to outside of the city to spend weekends and vacations during the summer. After a long winter, weekends at the cottage sound a, lot, a little bit like heaven to many Canadians. But if you talk to cottage owners, with ownership of a cottage comes a whole host of other problems. You suddenly become everyone's best friend, which maybe you love or maybe you do not like that, but become everyone's best friend because they want to come to your cottage. And trying to juggle schedules to make people happy can become quite stressful. Also, to cover costs, you might need to rent out the cottage to, for parts of the year to make up the, that money that you need to pay for different costs associated with that cottage. And with that comes a whole host of other problems. And then on top of that, uh, there comes the ordinary maintenance that comes with any property, but which is further complicated by the fact that this property is miles from where you actually live. Ownership of a cottage, with all its perks, also brings with it many other problems. I know some cottage owners who have ended up selling their cottage because, they, because it was more of a problem than it was worth for them. Now, I share this not to, to destroy your dreams of one day owning a cottage. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Not everyone's cottage experience is the same. But I share this as just an example that wealth isn't always the solution to our problems the way we imagine. We often think that if we had only had a little bit more money, that we'd be happier and less stressed out. But the story of Abram and Lot warns us against buying into that narrative. Increased wealth may not make us any happier, and it may actually increase our problems. Tied to this is the second cautionary aspect of this story. From a material perspective, the land that Lot receives looks like a very appealing place to go. But we see that the result is actually quite the opposite. Often we think that we know what we need and are disappointed when we do not get what we need. But the story of Lot and Abraham reminds us that sometimes our first choice is not actually the best thing for us. If you're disappointed in your lot in life, no pun intended, but if you're disappointed with your lot in life, and I imagine in the midst of this pandemic, most of us are a little bit disappointed, let this story of Lot and Abraham be an encouragement to you. We see in this story that Lot got what he wanted and it ended up horribly for him. And Abraham may not have gotten his first choice, but God continues to bless him. Christians, we worship a God who through the death of his son brought everlasting life to his people. If God can use such can bring such good out of such evil, surely you can use our plan Bs, our plan Cs, or whatever backup plan you are on right now to lead you and your families to a place of flourishing. So to recap quickly, we've seen so far Abram's faith exhibited through his return and through his relinquishment of his rights. Now we move on to this third part of this text and look at Abram's walk. After Lot departs from Abram, to go to the Jordan Valley, we come to a momentous moment in this passage. Abram is still near Bethel, near the altar where God spoke to him earlier. Abram has not heard from God in a long time, but we see in verse 14, God breaks his silence and speaks to Abram. In verse 14, God tells Abram to lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. God then makes a promise regarding the land that Abram is standing within. It sounds very familiar to the promise God made to Abram in chapter, seven, verse, chapter 12, verse 7. 
In chapter 12, verse 7, God told Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. The promise in our chapter is similar. There's a few noteworthy and interesting differences to note, make note of here. The promise in this chapter is in verse 15, where God says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Do you notice the differences there? One is with regards to time, and the other concerns scope. The first time God makes a promise, he promises the land, or in the second promise, he promises the land forever. Not just for a few generations, but for all of time. The second is that this promise, the second is that in the first promise, God promises the land to Abram's offspring. But in this promise, he also includes Abram in the promise as well, saying that he and his offspring will have the land forever. God then expands on his promise for his descendants as well. Instead of simply saying that, God, that Abram will have descendants, he tells Abram that his descendants will be more numerous than the dust of the earth. God has doubled down on the promises he made to Abram in chapter 12. The promises of God in Genesis 12, which are already huge, have been clarified and become even greater than they were originally. This expansion of the promise is remarkable because in many ways, nothing seems to have progressed for Abraham. He still lives in a land occupied by the Canaanites. He still has no children. And now he has even been separated from his nephew Lot. Again, it would have been very easy for Lot, for Abraham to, adopt, to doubt the promises of God in this moment. But that is not what happens here. In verse 17, God tells Abraham to arise. Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now, walking through the land uh, or a city in this time of history was akin to claiming ownership of that place. Victorious kings, after conquering a city, would walk through the city to symbolize their control of the city. God is commanding Abram to do the same, to take a victory march through the land and claim it for him and for his descendants. <clears throat> well, with little outward evidence that Abram will own the land or will even have descendants for that matter, this command by God is a call for Abram to walk by faith, to trust in God's promises despite what his circumstances might look like. And Abram once again responds in faith. He moves from around Bethel in the center of Canaan and eventually settles by the Oaks of Mamre near Hebron, which is in the south of Canaan, which is uh, southern Judah, if you know that that, makes, that helps at all. And there again, he builds an altar to the Lord, a symbol of his faith in God and his promises towards him. In this chapter, we don't see the fulfillment of the promises God made to Abram concerning the land or descendants. And it, if you fast forward through the story of Abram, you'll see that, God, that Abram actually never sees the promise of the, of the promised land fulfilled in his lifetime. Now in the future, some of his descendants experience a partial fulfillment of these promises when Israel conquers and occupies the land. However, that land is eventually lost, and it seems like the promises will not be fulfilled. But the Bible, if you look at it, tells us that, the prom that this promised land of Canaan was but a foretaste for the real, eternal promised land a promised land that will come as the new Jerusalem when Christ returns. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was to this city, this new Jerusalem, that Abraham was looking forward to, the city whose designer and builder was God. Christians are described as children of Abram, and thus the promise of this new Jerusalem, a place without sin and death, a place where God will make, his, make all things new and dwell with his people, this land is promised to Christians as well. 
This is the promised land Christians are called to look forward to with hope and with great expectation. But this is not only the incredible promise that God has made to his people. He has promised to forgive all their sins, promised to adopt them into his family, to not let anything separate them from his love, to be with them through all the challenges of life. Christians, we, like Abram, have been promised incredible things, promises that sometimes are hard to believe. We, like Abram, are called to walk by faith in this world and trust that God will be faithful to fulfill the many promises that he has made to us. And that's easy to say, that's hard to do. As we look back at this text, we see in Abram a man humbled by failure who turns to God. We see a man who relinquished his rights and trusted that God would provide wherever he ended up. And we see a man who believed and held on to God's promises despite circumstances that may have caused him to doubt. This chapter of Abram's life likely won't be the plot for the next Hollywood blockbuster. But for those of us who have been humbled by our failure, for those of us who are discouraged with where life has taken us, and for those of us who are struggling to trust in the promises of God, for us, this chapter of Abram's life ought to be an encouragement and an example for how we can live the life of faith. But the life of Abram does more than just show us an example. The life of Abram also points us forward to the greater Abraham, the one, who, the one promised by God to deliver his people from sin and death. The life of Abram points us to his descendant, who hundreds of years later would also travel from Egypt to the promised land. A man who was tempted on a mountainside by, wealth, by the wealth of nations, but resisted trusting God, and through it proved himself faithful. A man who traversed the promised land, declaring that the kingdom of God had arrived, improved it by showing his authority over creation, over the demonic, over sickness, and over even death. And at the cross, this man would relinquish his life for the sake of all who would believe in him. In the life of Abraham, we are drawn to look to Christ and the cross, the ultimate evidence of the faithfulness of God to his promises. As we struggle through the challenges and adversity of life, as we wrestle with this contentment as we struggle to believe the promises of God towards us. Christians, I urge you to look to Jesus. Look to the fulfillment of the greatest promise the world has ever seen. May this grow our faith so that we, like Abram, may walk by faith. Would you join me in praying? Gracious God, we praise you as a God who is faithful, a God who is faithful to Abram, and a God who is faithful to us. We confess that, Lord, we are often unfaithful. We lack faith in your promises. We, we do not trust you when adversity comes. We are discontent with where you've brought us. Uh, Lord, we, we need your grace. Would you help us to lift up our eyes, to behold you, to behold the greater Abraham, and to see uh, your faithfulness in the promises of Christ. Lord, change our hearts, grow our faith, and change us into the, into the image of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.